Welcome to the CMS Book Club. It's a play date for your brain, featuring a rotating panel of Center for Medical Simulation faculty. This week, we're talking about Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by Greg McKeown. With us today are Janice Falganis, Vic Brazel, Walter Epic, Laura Rock, Damian Shield, Jeff Cooper, Gracing, Kate Morse, and Robert Simon. Enjoy! public, not particularly for anyone medical or educational, uh, which draws probably lots of its examples more from business than anything else. But the essential message in this is do less and do it better. And so it sort of starts with providing a little bit of rationale for why this is a good idea, sort of moves into exactly what do we mean by essentialism, and then it probably moves into what I think is the much harder thing, which is how. How do you say no? How do you decide what's essential? How do you actually execute this cutting things out of your life? Uh, and throughout the book, with each of these stages, there's often little stories from industry, business, uh, other people's lives about how they executed this idea of essentialism and how it, in the most part, created success for them. Um, it's not particularly critical of itself. There's not too many counterpoints offered, I would say, um, but rather a sort of justification for why this is a good idea. So I think even just to sort of cut to the chase right at the beginning, I think this is a lovely thing that's easy for us to agree with in terms of, yeah, yeah, do less, but do it better, but I think incredibly hard in the execution as to how we might do it. So it might be just as easy to sort of start at the beginning and just the general conceptual idea about doing less and doing it better and seeing if people had comments, particularly in that sort of first part of the book, about um, their rationale about this or any disagreements with that. So I'll just kind of throw it open. You know, Jeff, as I was reading this book, I was thinking particularly about you. And having just retired, you are likely saying no to a lot more things that uh, you would have said yes to. And I wonder if there's anything that you've learned in your retirement transition <laughs> that you wish you applied 10 years ago. Uh, well, yes. And what I was starting to say, but I didn't take myself off mute, when I started to read this, my first thought was, why do I need to read this? 
and my decision should be it's not essential, so I shouldn't bother. <laughs> so, uh, but, but I decided, no, uh, this is kind of what happens when you try to be essential. Uh, I'm part of this book club. I said I would do this, so I'm going to give it a shot. And then to be essential, I decided to skim it more. But then I also found that I really, it, it, I learned things from it. It was useful, and I started to put them more into play. But I've been working on this probably for 20 years. This, I never knew it was called this, uh, of learning how to say no to things. And I can't remember where I picked it up, but, uh, but I have a particular way that I approach it. And I, and I don't know that I've done it any differently since July 1st, but uh, I am doing it, and I'm very specific about it. But I can talk about the one specific thing, because they don't really highlight it much in the book. It's one little paragraph, and I was waiting for it to come. We're going to talk about it more. But it's how I never say... I almost, there's no such thing as never, but I almost never say no without trying to help the person. And so we can talk about that more because I think that's, that's the way to approach the no is to just, you know, just drop it because I don't think, that, I, don't, I don't agree with the premise about how people are all going to be happy if you always say no to them. I didn't buy that. Yeah. So, Jeff, I really learned that from you um, when you say no to to think about someone else and and from a personal perspective I you know I just made a move in homes um, and we moved to a smaller place and our goal was to get rid of half of our things we've gotten rid of maybe a third so I particularly appreciated the analogy of thinning out your closet and getting rid of clothes and it was interesting because I started hoarding as I was going through the process I really wanted to keep you know the third of clothes that I was throwing out. And then my daughter pointed out a good friend of mine who's like a sister, and she was like, she would look really good in that. And when I started thinking about her, all of a sudden I was throwing out half because I knew I was going to give it to somebody who I really enjoy and love and who I know um, would have looked good in that. And so I think that's a really important piece for me in saying no to things is thinking who I can pass it off to. Yeah, I think that comes down to that execute factor. Um, even if you know this is a good idea, actually making it happen, I think, is really hard. And like you, the wardrobe thing is pretty confronting. If you actually said, do I really love wearing this? Do I really look fabulous in this? It narrows things down in the wardrobe quite a lot, and yet to throw <laughs> away all that other stuff that you just never know, yeah. uh, it's hard. Yeah, if I lose 10 pounds. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one, right, yeah. Well, yeah, this is uh, this is Walter chiming in. You know, I, I think the clothes are, in a way, a metaphor for the decisions that we're making. And uh, as I look at the, the summary of the book and the notion of having to make choices, having to discern what's important, what sort of things you want to prioritize, it sort of really resonates in many ways. And it, I think the clothing is, is a neat analogy. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think there's some really valuable lessons to the book, and I feel almost like I need to spend more time looking at the book. Oh, can I piggyback onto that? This is Grace. Hi, Grace. Um, I, also, I also moved from, like, a three-bedroom house to a one-bedroom apartment. Um, and I think I, I did the same thing with clothes, except that I didn't even bother giving it to someone or donated, donating it to charity. I just threw them all out right in the garbage 
So I think listening to Walter's comment about it being a metaphor, I'm also thinking that applying this principle of essentialism to clothes, it's really a good way to practice. His clothing is so low stakes, right? I mean, if I'm throwing out a $20 item that I got from H&M, it's such a low stake setting, but it's such a great way to practice. You know, it's interesting. When I started reading this book, I showed it to Mitch, my husband, and he said, you could have written this book because I already practice this kind of, I didn't know it was called this either, but I have a very minimalist closet. I keep a bag in my closet for everything I put on and don't really love and get rid of it. And I already learned, like I made Just Say No my mantra for the year, like three years ago, and I decided to stop teaching how to read an x-ray to first-year med students, and I don't do the physical exam, and I'm no longer a room parent for my kid's classroom, and I made this big effort to try to not do the non-essential, but I feel like I'm at a point where I can't, like everything left seems essential, and maybe it's the parenting and working balance that I'm struggling with, but I feel like I'm not um, feeling balanced, but I've already eliminated so much. And I, I feel like um, that's sort of where I am with essentialism, that even if you've gone there philosophically, there comes a point where even the essential may be too much to achieve that mindset and balance. It's Vic here again. I agree with you. And I think this is all very nice in theory when you give, as he did, only very professional and work-focused examples. I think if you have children, you have a messy life, uh, and plenty of other things have a messy life, where it's an actually kind of selfish to practice essentialism. And so there is something in being messy and non-essential because some of it is just you don't get to have all this nice pure life that essentialism maybe describes to you because you have other you have other responsibilities that maybe you can't say no to so I think that's a very pragmatic world view and I think you also have to cut yourself some slack if you do a whole bunch of non-essential things for other people. So Laura it's Kate um, while you were speaking I'm thinking someone along the same line says Vic that life is messy and it's not a cut and dried uh, approach and you may be balanced one week and be able to say no and feel like you've struck that appropriate essential balance but it, I don't think it's sustainable all the time I don't think it's a static state that you do this work um, like Janice is talking about you know you've done this work you've pared things down and then you're there. I think it's a constant back and forth because new things come up to um, take your time that you may or may not have anticipated. And then you have to start all over again about making choices, what's important, whether it's, you know, an illness in the family, a child that has something that's very interesting that's going to take time from everybody else, but as a group you decide to a priority. I just don't see it as a static state. I see it maybe more as an aspirational state. Yeah. yeah. It's such a struggle for me. I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking about like, I think about 15 years ago, I decided I was going to, when I first started, I realized I really need to go on a just say no campaign. 
I was trying to think of ways to, to do it. And I think Robert laughed at me when I was on a call with him once, but it was every third offer I had to say no. <laughs> and it was fun. It was fun for a little bit. Um, probably inherited from my dad who's a professional poker player. Like there was some fun in it, but it just didn't work. And there's, you know, lots of things over the years that I've just tried that made sense. But I mean, that one didn't make sense. The main thing that worked for me uh was to never agree to anything on the spot. Like if I, because in the hospital, most things happen because you run into someone. So um, I'd run into someone and they'd say, oh, Laura, it would be so awesome if you could teach the surgical critical care fellows, you know, your family meeting thing. Can you do that? And so now I, and I would be honored and I would be like, oh, it's one hour, whatever, you know, Um, I would. Now I, I never say yes to anything on the spot. I just say, send me an email and I'll get back to you. How long do you wait to get back? I, I answer things pretty fast. Um, it's just whether I, and, and so this may be an essentialism thing, but I, I, at the, for a while I would keep a post-it on my computer of like, what was my main purpose in academic medicine? Like, what do I care most about? And I would look at the post-it and go, is this related to my goal? If not, say no. But, you know, sometimes, as Vic was saying, like, you do have to help people out. And, you know, if not, you're just kind of an People won't help you when you need help. And so it's not perfect, but I got to the point where, you know, yes, I know that probably my division chief is pissed that I no longer teach pulmonary pathophysiology at the med school, and I no longer teach all kinds of things, but that's what I've done. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, Laura. You you said a, a couple of things that really resonated for me. First, you mentioned goal, um, which sort of is a sort of an aspirational element about something you're moving towards. And I think uh, number two, the saying no, which everyone's been talking about, really is about creating space, which is one of the things that um, the author writes about: creating space for yourself through you know making yourself unavailable or creating space for yourself to think. And I think the implications of not saying no are that you don't have the space to cogitate on what you'd like to do to move you towards your goals. And I've been spending quite a bit of time in the past two or three weeks thinking about my goals in terms of finishing my PhD. And um, I've worked with my team to set a goal of sort of summer 2018, June, July, to submit the work. And on the one hand, I feel like what I need to accomplish between now and then is uh, publish two papers and have another one ready to submit, which seems reasonable, and the devil's in the details. So what I've worked on is sort of what am I going to be doing um, in the next three months, in the next six months, in the next nine months, in the next 12 months. And I've been realizing that that's not good enough either. What I need to be doing is, okay, what am I getting done this week? And um, I think this notion of setting goals and creating space that I can actually think about what I need to be thinking about to make progress is, is something that really leapt off the page for me as I was looking at this. Um, and I'm wondering how people see that or what sort of experiences people have had with goal setting and creating space to do the thinking you need to move forward. One thing that I learned at a, some kind of time management talk I went to last year, a couple years ago, was when you make a to-do list, instead of just having um, like this sort of general to-do, like 
published paper, it would include like the first action item that you have to do to start the process. You know, when you think about your actions that you need to take as opposed to a general concept of a to-do list, maybe it helps you to be more focused or more aware of what it takes to be productive in that way. I mean, I would, I would uh, agree 100% with what you're saying. It's actually making the goals be so granular that it's, that it's um, a very small successes that are adding up rather than thinking, okay, I need to write a paper. It's, mm-hmm. I need to do this by the end of the week. Um, so I'm trying to shift my thinking and become even more focused on getting this work done. Well, one thing I really liked that he mentions in the book is developing triggers to get you to do that first action. So, I mean, hit the example he says is putting his journal somewhere, I think close to his phone or his nightstand or whatever, so that he remembers to journal every night. Um, so for me, it's like, you know, not just having that thing on my to-do list, but having a reminder that's visual in my daily whereabouts and habits that'll really trigger me to say, hey, you need to do this first step. Yeah, that to me is about getting things done, which is certainly also important. And actually, uh, Sam Sadawi Kanevka at MGH has published that whole trigger, a piece about that trigger technique. It gets um, gets gets you to do things by, you know, when you're on your goal sheet, to be thinking of the trigger to remind you to do it. And he did it with getting residents to uh, read X number of papers, and he showed a substantial improvement in people doing things that they generally don't have time to do uh, by using, setting up this trigger method that's like what you're talking about. So there is a psychological and there's some empirical evidence that that actually makes a difference in getting you to do things that you don't think you have time to do. This is Damien. Um, here in the conversation, I had a couple of I, thoughts of things that I've been doing. So um, Laura was, and Walter were talking about to-dos. And I am a big list maker. I love making a to-do list. But then I read uh, one of those funny LinkedIn things that said most effective people, they don't make to-do lists. They schedule the item. And that has been really helpful for me because I will only say yes or putting something on a to-do list is like saying yes to yourself. So either way, if I'm thinking of something I want to accomplish or... Um, somebody asked me to do something, I go to my calendar and I schedule it because that creates the space to accomplish um, the task. And if there's no time to accomplish it, then I, I know I have to say no. Um, of course, things come up, so then just moving the item from the scheduled day to another time um, it has been much better for me because if I keep it on the to-do list, it just keeps on moving around the to-do list putting it at a different time. So that combines some of the ideas and um, thought I would bring that back from my experience. Yeah, I think that's nice, Damien. It's thick here. And I think this was very similar to another, actually even lighter read, a book called Deep Work by a guy called Cal Newport, which is very similar, just sort of saying to do deep work, you have to, as he calls it, drain the shallows and get rid of everything else. But he certainly talks about this idea of scheduling rather than having a list of goals um, as a way of making it really practical. Because for me, conceptually, this comes down to honesty that we can't have with ourselves when we say yes, because we think, 
the conference is next October. Of course I'll have time then. Uh, and so we're completely unrealistic about our assessment of our time in the future. We think it's this massive pool of free time that we have when we say yes. And uh, yet if we're a little bit more rigorous about it, we know that when it comes October 2017, we're going to be flat out with all the usual stuff we've got. And we're going, why on earth did I say yes to that? So I think you're right. It's about... Uh, somehow having the honesty to realise that when you say yes, there will be a price. And I think that comes back to Laura's thought. There's nothing wrong with saying yes for all the good motivational reasons. It's just it's very hard for us to be honest about what we're saying no to as a result um, because we just think, well, I can still fit that in. It will just go in somewhere that I don't know yet, whereas I think the scheduling is one way of trying to make ourselves a bit more honest about that. I think when another... One thing that I've learned in my move as well that I realized leads to a lot of my failure around essentialism is, um, so during my move, I found a set of wedding candles. And, you know, in the Filipino tradition, it's that's actually very important, the wedding candles. And I kept it, and I was thinking, should I throw it out? So I asked my daughter, and she says, keep it. And then... My mother says, keep it. And my daughter looks at me and she goes, Mom, you're asking two hoarders. And I really learned about, like, I'm realizing I purposely ask people that tell me what I want to hear, that say, yes, you should do it. You're going to have time. It's really important to you. It's essential. And, and Jeff, this is why I miss you so dearly here, because I think when I used to go through everything that I did with you, you really would get to the heart of what my focus was and and not go into that, uh, like, non-essentialism. So it's really who you ask as well. So um, have you heard of the, speaking of cleaning your closets, have you heard of the condo book? No. Have, has anyone heard of this? It's like, so it's been on the best-selling author, best-selling book list for, I don't know, months and months, and it's written by this, woman named Marie Kondo, who's a um, professional organizer in Japan. She doesn't speak English, but she's become famous all over the world. And it, her and Kondo has become a verb, condoing, or, you know, it's, um, and her, uh, it's a short book that's all about organization, physical, like organization in your house. And I um, saw it at a friend's house and I started reading it and took it home and basically, I was just hoping to sort of condo my husband because I, as I said, I'm already a real minimalist and I don't keep things and I'm, I'm constantly purging. And he's going to toss him out. And he has, he, he has his beer can collection from high school, you know, from college. And with, I mean, he's, he's like moved shit so many times. But like one thing that she said that I actually think was kind of helpful is when you are considering whether her whole trigger is, does this bring me joy? Does this shirt bring me joy? Does this candle bring me joy? If it brings me joy, I keep it. And if it doesn't truly bring me joy, if, you, if I have to ask someone whether I want to keep it or not, that's a don't keep. Oh, that's so good. Um, but the thing is that I think was really helpful is when, when you are holding something and asking yourself whether it brings you joy, um, and you decide to discard it, you, you don't discard it because it's not valuable or that you don't like it. It's because its value to you has already occurred. So 
you can appreciate it and sort of thank it for giving you what it gave you in your life and then either give it away or throw it out. Um, and, you know, so even with, you know, a favorite shirt that you found that you haven't worn in two years, but you used to just love it, like you could sort of recognize that it provided a lot of value, that you enjoyed it, that you loved it, or, or even articles or books. Like, the, I mean, some of the hardest things to get rid of are books. And so, like, holding a book that was once really um, incredibly important for you to just say, this had a really huge importance in my life, and right now I no longer benefit from it, and it's not bringing, I don't need it anymore, to sort of acknowledge that, and I think even with our work, to, to apply that concept to essentialism and work, like even if you've worked really hard on a project and you're finding that your interests have moved in another direction, you could probably apply that concept and say, this pro I learned a lot doing this. I, I, I gained a lot and I contributed, and now it's time for me to shift into a different direction. And not, it's not like giving up. It's just choosing to appreciate what it's done for you and what you've done for it and move on. So, I mean, the book is like, it's definitely a little bit of a, you know, it's about closets. But it had some, I thought that her philosophy about how to decide whether something has value and also how to deal with things that have nostalgic importance but are no longer really important in your life, like the a method or a philosophy of appreciating what made it so important or why you're nostalgic about it, but then also allowing yourself to get rid of it is, is kind of interesting. This part of the, this, I, I like that a lot, Laura, the joy and the thinking. Um, this part of the conversation is making me think about, is this all about oneself and is this like a selfish proposition to be essential? Um, like thinking about Genesis example, like when you throw out the candles from the wedding, are you depriving your great-grandchildren the opportunity to see those candles? <laughs> or what is the cost-benefit? Um, and so I'm curious what folks around this table are thinking um, this means in terms of individualism, communities, our, you know, our, our academic community, other communities of practice that you're involved in. I think it's about choices. Um, sorry, Laura, I saw you take a deep breath there. You were about to speak. <laughs> I cut you off. Um, you're choosing to keep thing A and therefore get rid of thing B, or you're choosing to write this paper but not do this presentation. Uh, to me, that was something that I found valuable out of this book was the idea that you're choosing to say yes to something means you're choosing to say no to something else. But there's not necessarily a value aspect, perhaps to you individually. Um, or you may choose to say yes to something because it's helping someone that you're deeply grateful for or someone who's helped you in the past, and that makes it more important than saying yes to something that would only further your own career. So I think it's about, for me, it's about making <clears throat> and being clear and, as Vic said, honest about why am I saying yes or why am I holding on to this? Um, what happens if I do it? What happens if I don't do it? I think the critical thing about this book and about the topic in general is metacognition and stopping and thinking. It sounds like most people on this call are already doing that. And then, there, then there's this question of techniques for doing it. And then one I alluded to at the beginning is something I've really worked on to balance both
is when somebody asks me to do something, if my, my uh, as was mentioned earlier, my, uh, Laura said, my first reaction is do not, never accept now. Same thing, just ask them to write the email. Half the time they'll forget and they won't write it. And if they do write the email, then I have time to think about it. Uh, but I, I, I just really think hard about saying no. It's like my default is why should I say yes? But then I always, like somebody asked me to do a review for an article, I really have to think hard, why do I want to do this? But I always give them suggestions for other people to ask to do it. And I try to think of, I don't try to dump it on those people. It takes a little bit of work. But I, I, I just feel like saying no to people all the time. Again, that's not what this guy says in the book, that people will respect you for it. They'll, I don't know, he says love you for it. But I don't think that that's, that's not my experience. When people just react, no. If you give a reason, and he, he says, yeah, give a reason, but the way he gives the reason did not resonate with me as working most of the time. But if you really try to help them solve their problem without them using you to solve the problem, then you get you get, take care of them. And that doesn't take anywhere near as much work as being the one who solves it. You're doing the work to solve it. So, um, so I, you know, I, I read this synopsis in... Um, as, as I read, as I read, as I'm listening to the conversation, it, it's all about an area where where we make choices, and there's just a lot of things where we don't make choices. So we might make a large choice in terms of, well, I want this job, or I'll do that project. Then once you decide that, then there's a raft of things that come with it, and so. You know, thinking about the, the graphic that you know that that I saw, where you know we're able to invest ourselves in something in a parsimonious, efficient way, and then all the garbage goes away, and that that ring is very small. But boy, there's a lot of stuff. Like, okay, so just today, uh, Kate got assigned putting together a. Uh, shell of a curriculum and working through that and you know she, we didn't ask Kate do, do you want to do that um was Kate that's got to get done so you know Kate like she can't say no or we could negotiate around it but there's things that we all have to do like Janice has to throw out stuff it's not like there's a decision that gee I, I should just start to throw stuff out she had to throw stuff out and and Jeff you know so I think you know so Jeff, you know, so I've worked with Jeff for a long time, and it's, like, in my mind, Jeff says yes, 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 to the point where uh, Jeff would walk around with two cell phones, and it would be connected, you know, it, you could text him, you could email him, you could, and he'd get back to you within three minutes, like, for years. And Jeff has a, a, an approach to, to emails, if there, people are asking him to do something, I remember that. I'm impressed that, that he could do this, really. Um, he does that task then. He doesn't say, oh, I'll do this later. I'm going to get this done. Get this done. Get this done. And so I guess my point is that there's lots of things that come at you that you have to deal with. Um, this is true, except to take your example, Robert, uh, I think it comes back to, and I think it links nicely to Damien's question about is it selfish I think it's not selfish if you say no to something because you can't do a good job of it. 
and the ultimate premise, I think, is if you say yes to too many things, you won't do a good job of them. So if I were Kate's boss, I think it would be her responsibility to say to me, no, I'm not going to do that new curriculum because I can't do a good job of it because I have these other things. So I think uh, you're right. Of course we have to. We've all got stuff we have to do. I think the premise here is be aware and honest with you and the people that you're conversing with about whether you're going to be able to do a decent job of it if you say yes. Um, so I think there's nothing wrong with there is realities of life, but at the same time I think there's responsibilities to be aware and communicate and tr be honest about the trade-offs of doing anything. So, you know, Vic, it's really interesting uh, just to build on your comments and to... Uh also go back to Robert's comment. I remember, Robert, when I took the IMS course in 2004, in June 2004, we were working on our um, little projects that we were supposed to bring to the course. And one of the things you said to me was, Walter, perfect is the, en uh, is the enemy of good. And I think very often when we're doing tasks that we have to do, that is so true. We want it to be good perfect, and then we, we don't say, okay, it's good enough. Um, so that, that really stuck with me, and uh, very often wanting things to be perfect gets in the way and actually can be a source of frustration because I think people would rather deal with something that still needs a little bit of work rather than not having anything to work on. Um, so just something, too, that I think about. Greg McKeown talked about focusing on minimal viable progress. I kind of liked his phrase, so I wrote it down. And that, and he's talking about exactly that, Walter, that um, done is better than perfect. I guess uh, one of the things that, you know, I like to think about, so what is this, I mean, I, I, I do understand, you know, what this means in our personal lives and, you know, where we have, where we have in, in my mind anyway, where we have a greater amount of control or where we can find control, you know, these things are really worthwhile. I guess I'm curious if anybody has made a, a connection for, um, or I think maybe it's worth articulating. What, what, what does this mean for, uh, for CMS? What does this mean for, and what does this mean for the people that we're trying to uh, teach and uh, inspire. I think that's a nice um, sort of segue into that broader what's an organisational level essentialism and in fact there is I think one story in the book that maybe triggers this conversation where they talk about Southwest Airlines mm -hmm. emerging as a budget airline and just deciding to do this strategy which was very successful for them and these other airlines saying oh we'll do a bit of that too and they call this a straddling strategy where you try and stick with what you did do but also do what other people did. And, of course, that doesn't work very well because you haven't really changed your spots. You've just said, I want a bit of their success, so I'll do some of my stuff like them. Whereas uh, essentialism says, no, no, you pick your path and that is what you are good at and you say no to other strategies because this is yours and it's the cohesive one that leads to success. So I think that was probably the... the the book's uh, sort of positioning on your topic, Robert, um, and, I, and I think it, there probably is an organisational level interpretation of it, so others would probably have ideas and thoughts. 
Well, I can give you a couple examples. So, uh, one thing that I, um, what well, was Jenny and Dan and I some years ago, we were getting peppered with, you want to do this research project, or you want to do this research project, you know, and they're invariably they're you know they're interesting and um, and we just you know but we had this value that we wanted to help other folks. We wanted to you know develop faculty and we wanted to get the mission in simulation and we never wanted to say no. We wanted to encourage, 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 and we finally decided that we had to focus our portfolio. And so we made this decision, which I think has stood us well through many years, of focusing on two areas in our portfolio: one being debriefing, and the other on speaking up our difficult conversations. So those are the things that we say, yeah, we'll get involved in that. And when our faculty or our uh, mentees want to do that kind of work, we say, yes, for sure, we'll help you with that. Other stuff is like, well, you know, as you say, refer them to someone else. Say, I encourage you to do it. Sounds great. It's not my thing. And the other thing I do is, is when, I, when I talk to uh, people who want to learn how to do research, one of the first things I say, uh, you know, I try to get from them is, are you interested in doing this? Do you want the answer? Do you have a passion for this? Or are you doing it because you think you have to? If you don't have the, the first thing, it's not ever, ever going to get done. Because it's a lot of work. I tell them that. Um, and so I know that, you know, those kinds of advice things, I think, I think it helps folks. So those are a couple examples that, that, that come to my mind. I, you know, kind of related to, to what Robert is just saying and um, and Damon, when you brought up the, the aspect of selfishness, um, it was interesting. My immediate reaction was, you know, we talk about selfishness as saying no to people, but isn't it more selfish to be saying yes to so many things? Um, in terms of an organizational standpoint as well. I mean, Well, in my, in my mind, saying yes to too many things is worse in some ways because then you don't perform. Right. And then and everyone's... And the reason you say yes yeah. is because you think you can do right. it. It's all about you, kind of. Yeah, well, that was a major point that he was making in the book, that particular point. Uh, people will be happier if you say no more often because you'll get done the things you say you're going to do, and that's the major rationale for it. Mm -hmm. And then he also, I'm curious how people took his point that I think came more toward the end around, that for, so like the Southwest Airlines and other examples he gave, uh, I can't remember them specifically, but organizations who only focus on, they have a clear focus, that's all they do, and then within the organization, maybe you remember which the example was of uh, every person who was it? Just does one thing, and you can only have one thing that that's what you do. Maybe remember that it was toward the end. Uh, it was a well-known company, and whoever the boss was was you. That this is your thing. That's what you do, and you don't overlap. Um, and he just wants to know. All he wants to talk to you about is how are you doing on that thing. And that's not the way I operate. I'm kind of not the complete opposite. But I was. Um, I used to have maps of how the various things I did were synergistic, and I wanted to shed things that didn't didn't have synergy. So if I was doing work in this organization, and it was all by itself, unless there was some special reason I was doing it, like 
you know, some volunteer thing that that's what I did. They had to overlap, that one had to help the other. And so I had leverage. So the work I did in the anesthesia space had leverage with what I did in the biomedical engineering space and overlapped with this foundation and that foundation. And I, and I had this map. I had to explain it to myself, so I drew it out. You know, kind of like the map we do with you, Janice. You know, you're, uh, when we used, um, what's it called? Uh, the, the mapping. Mindmeister. Mindmeister, Mind yeah. And, and so that's a thing that can be helpful to use Mindmeister to map out the things in your life. And if, if you need that, you know, to be more visual about it. But, but my criteria was synergy. And I'm not a, I can only do one thing first, I'm not happy that way. I, I get bored just doing one thing and focusing on one thing. But to your point, Laura, what I was thinking of is when you were, if you had to make the decision to say no to teach some, whatever it is, to medical students, if there's a reason that you say, well, well wait a second, I need to re be reminded of what it feels like to be at the sharp end. And I'm not saying that's true in your case, but, but for me, I might say, geez, I want to say yes because I want to feel what that's like because really, I need that to inform this other thing I'm doing. Now, it can be a rationalization. you got to be careful. But that's the way I'm deliberate about it, is to have the things all feed on each other. So I'm curious, did people read that part? Or did I didn't see the summary. And so it was toward the end of the book about organizational and within an organization focus. Well, I'm, I'm, one thing I'm hearing you say is that I'm, one thing I'm thinking about is what about saying yes to things because you need that person who wants your help to help you with something else. That's another reason. And, you know, I've said no to things like that, and I know I'm on a few people's list, not yours, but... Because um, <laughs> you love me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it, it's clearly a decision point sometimes. It's, I'll say yes, but and you can say it's Machiavellian or it's dishonest or something, but... I don't know. It's reality. You, this guy's asked me something that I want, and I have really good examples of that. Um, I mean, people have heard the story with Sunder when we had the faculty course, and he called me and asked me for something, and I did it for him. But then I dragged him in because I needed his help to do something else. It's a what do you call that? A, Quid pro quo. Is it, yeah, he didn't know it was, but it is. Quid pro quo. I think, as you know, anybody, you know what I mean. So I'm curious about people. So I'm, uh, I told you I have 10 minutes left or something. Uh, so one of the things I'm going to take away, by the way, this specific, because I like to take real action, is uh, I'm going to try scheduling things more. I do more of that now where I, like, I put things in my calendar for tomorrow right in the calendar. And then if I'm not getting them done, I'll move them around. But they haven't. Uh, my calendar is a lot freer than your guys these days because I'm semi-retired, so it's a lot easier for me. Uh, I don't have quite the same pressure. Uh, but I, I'm curious, are there things you're specifically going to do? Again, I'm, I'm, I, this, this book did help me because I am more metacognitive. I'm thinking more about what I say yes to and when I stop doing things and all that. So where, who, who recommended it? Was that you, Vic? Is, is this your... It was Vic's recommendation? It was Vic's, and it, it's actually a funny story. We were. We well, if it's not essential, don't tell them now because we only have two. <laughs> no, it's very essential. It's okay. it's book club. The last meeting, it was only Vic and me, and and Vic had recommended the book Essentialism because if people are too busy to be coming to our <laughs> meetings, to not come to our meetings, we should read this. 
<laughs> yeah, I said, all oh, you guys are doing way too much stuff. <laughs> well, I appreciate the book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, in terms it, it of takeaways, that might be quite useful to hear from people what they think. I'm happy to volunteer mine. I don't think for me this was a revolution. I think my interest in the book was triggered by probably starting to do this a little bit better this year. And I think uh, career-wise, I have, over the last 18 months, significantly narrowed my focus for the benefit of what I'm doing. So I would say, for me, the book almost became an effect of the cause that I was interested in this to begin with, and I think I'd read a few other books along the same lines. So for me, it's a little just another voice in the back of my head when I'm thinking about those micro-choices and macro-choices each day. So that's for me, but others? And could you share what you're focused on, Vic? Yeah, sure. So I, yeah, sure. So 18 months ago, two years ago, I was um, in charge of all the clinical skills at the university. My HR extended to 30 simulated patients, uh, 30 academic staff, uh, curriculum responsibilities, assessment responsibilities, fun, interesting, exciting, still doing clinical work. And over that 18 months, I have narrowed down, and now I'm just the director of simulation. I have my simulation fellow and technical folks that report to me, so I've got rid of a whole bunch of HR, which we all know is hard work. Um, and I've started doing that scheduling thing you're talking about. So now I do my work in blocks of 90 minutes, and I don't look at my emails, and I don't look at those other things, and I use inbox pause when I'm doing something that needs attention, and, uh, and I schedule everything. So that's a little snapshot, but roughly that's sort of how I've done those things. And I've decided everything's about sim, and so if people ask me to speak, uh, that's what it's got to be about, not other things that maybe I previously spoke about, um, which are interesting but not at the heart of what I want to do for the next three to five years. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming and um, for this discussion. I just I love these meetings. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks so much for listening to the CMS Book Club. We hope you'll check out the book for yourself and tune in next time for another episode. Bye-bye.